I know there was something else I was going to share, but uh, maybe I'll get that later. We're going to pick it up where we left off. And so we made it actually to verse 121. That's where the next verse was going to be. It wasn't a real um, long plowing. We actually did from 113 on Sunday to 120. <clears throat> but we're going to see how far we can go now. The theme opened up, even as Everest has been praying, in terms of what the rest of the psalm covers. And it basically is an affirmative. I'm not one of those guys. I'm not with that group. I'm independent of where their perversions are, their politics are, their mentality. I'm beyond that. I'm not with them. I'm with God. So that's an important statement to make. Shakespeare is famous for saying in one of his many plays, above all things, to thine own self be true. And I think I've used that quote. I remember hearing it all the way back when I was in junior high. I remember the man in those special assemblies that said that. It was one of the first times in which what we know now as the LBGTQWXYZ made their appearances in hidden what we call assemblies. He was a very talented and gifted gymnast that came in with a trampoline, several of them. But his quote wasn't being used to exalt Shakespeare. His quote was to make a point about how you feel your truth. And by the way, I would say very, on a sinister side, prophetic, because that is what you're hearing, my truth. I have no gender. I'm in love with trees, with the sky, with myself. And it's all because of what we know to be true, deviation from the word of God and allowing us to have imaginations that are both vain and vile, prevailing over truth. But I simply mention that because in my heart, which would have been about a 7th or 8th grader, I remember in the moment that he said that, I said above all things, to my God be true. Don't even know why, because um, definitely was saved, definitely felt spiritual. I was athletic, but for that to come out of my heart, just on my lips, I was judging the man solely on his quote about Shakespeare. It wasn't until the conclusion of his gymnastic presentation that he hit a whiteboard and began to cite historically all the figures of great athletes and intellectuals, cultural motivators, politicians that had taken that side of biology and twisted it. So that's not to spend a lot of time with this except to say that everything that follows is saying, I am not one of them. Because we want them to be one of us. 
but they must be one of us by what the Bible says is obedience to the word of God. Not to pursue God and expect him to change for us, but to be in pursuit of God and expect the change to happen within us. And if there's anybody that has messed up the moral compass, it has been the politicians in our lives who have not kept the word of God, abandoned precepts and commandments and laws and testimonies to their own hurt and to ultimately the crumbling and corrosion of a culture that still hungers and thirsts for righteousness, but they're drinking out of cisterns that have holes, water that is defiled, and they eat the bread that is not the Lord's. So that's kind of a prelude. <laughs> but it's necessary because as we move through this, we want to be able to say, not one of them. I might be found among them, but I assure you, I am not one of them. And whatever proximity I have with them, it shall be in the persuasion of the Spirit to speak truth to them and to remove myself from them. And Paul would make a distinction. You know, we are to be those who know how to rightly discern who we are with. If it is the blatant, overt pursuit of sin by those who call themselves believers, which again would certainly allude to what I've shared about this situation in 1973, 74, 73, 72, back it up. Then it has come really around in full circle and cycle, except with more advocates to what this one person was doing. I would suspect at the age I was, and now at 64, this man is no longer living. The question is, did he change for the eternal security that God offers? Or did he go down truly in vanity to a place reserved by choice to be exiled from God because he would not accept God? I have done justice, righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. So one of the things that we'll see is the siding of attributes of what it is we do do. We will also find that there is transparency on the things that have led to the psalmist's reality of the sting of disobedience. But justice again and righteousness deal with how God deals with people. And justice isn't per se hanging or the firing squad or lethal injection, those may be the outcome of a judgment which is a part of judicial prudence. We, of course, have also challenged God on that. There are some people, according to the word, that in a society have abdicated their right to live socially among people. And you can look at it either way. Some who would say, well, they would suffer more if they lived out their lifetime in jail. Well, I'm not necessarily so 
persuaded that if their wish is that a man or a woman suffer more greatly for a lifetime in jail, then how in the world does that have a better argument than one who was basically put out of their misery for the type of sin that they committed? I mean, if you had to look at what justice means, which is fair and reasonable, it would not seem to me to have the argument based on what is fair and reasonable if they say it's too hard, lethal injections causing pain. Well, last time I had an injection that did not pain me, it was and potentially could have been lethal depending on how much they gave me. But all it did was put me to sleep. So whether it's that or the other, the argument doesn't hold up. If you're so concerned about the treatment of prisoners, then how can you stand on the merit of better to let them live a life in confinement till the day they die than to terminate their life because they effectually took out the life of the innocent? bears a lot of weight. But God had a plan concerning the merit of both corporal punishment and capital punishment, and we seem to now have confused both of those. Parents don't necessarily do what they ought to do in public forums. I remember in raising <laughs> Karis, Spencer, Zachary, and Everest. And I remember that Chrissy would precaution me. Rich, you got to be careful. Oh, I will be. As I took one of them, I won't name. Yes, I will. It was Spencer. <laughs> he ruined our Mexican dinner. He was a good kid. All of our kids really good. I mean, we were one of those families that could enter into a restaurant, and they would pay us just to stay to be examples. <clears throat> but on this one occasion, that wasn't happening. And it was a simple command that Spencer was not obeying. It either dealt with one... <clears throat> a food item that he would not eat, or a behavioral pattern that he was demonstrating. So he was next to me, and I said, uh-uh. And he said, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I said, we're going to excuse ourselves, aren't we, Spencer? And of course, I was big enough to grab him and take him out. Now he's big enough to grab me and take me out. <laughs> I got a few kicks, though. Come on. Um, so what I did is I had to walk a long ways to get to a car because we had to park there. And where really what he had done required a very quick answer, I took him into the car, and I had all the room I needed and all the discretionary privilege that it was required. But we did that three times. And each time I was said, are we really now able to go in there and enjoy a meal? <laughs> oh, that's good. And as soon as we sat down, he did it again. And I told him if he did it again, I'd do it again. So the reason that I say that is that the Lord is tenacious with what regarding justice it means to be in pursuit of what the outcome is of being fair and reasonable. And that is a fruit which bears a parallel in righteousness. Decisions that can be made that are right before the Lord. Because justice was exercised in fairness and reasonability. 
And so the psalmist is saying, I have done justice and righteousness. We know that historically he also erred in both of those ways. In this, though, the affirmative is what is to anchor us. This is what I do. This is who I am. Things in this world will not change my course of what is pleasing to the Lord. And simply this, because when you talk about justice and righteousness, you can anchor that in the do not leave me to my oppressors. I'm in an oppressive culture. We are in spiritual warfare, Lord, and it is oppressive. Don't leave me to them. Some would say, well, doesn't that show a weakness then in faith? It shows a transparency and a desire that the rescue always be within the whisper of a prayer. I'm glad I don't have to go through a lot of, you know, expressive, um, you know, motions or emotions to call upon God, to time him. How fast is he going to answer me? But to know that the moment he hears me, the transaction has been done. Because of the fact that evil does exist, we need to have a confidence that in how we applied our belief that the Lord will not leave us to our oppressors, we can trust in him. But what happens when that is violated? Just read in the news that like a 10-year-old girl was waiting for her bus ride and she was basically being scouted by a perverted man that came after her with a knife to kidnap her. She saw him coming. She had something that she was playing with, like a Play-Doh. I think they called it slime. It was rather fascinating because a neighborhood camera caught this and they caught the guy. And his record goes back years of being one who was a violator of young kids. And so the Lord made and allowed this girl to escape. She had her slime and marked him, and she had feet that kicked him, and fingernails that clawed him, and fists that pummeled him, and she ran as fast as she could. Well, that doesn't sound like God. God will use every resource in your body to make you a champion in a warfare that he wants us to contend with. I mean, we need to be fighters. We do. And I say that not to knives and guns. They happen, and I'm a Second Amendment guy. But I'm saying we need to be spiritual warriors that call upon God and acknowledge God for his deliverances of us and how he chose to use the attributes of strength that we have, the time that you didn't overcorrect your car, the time that you did brake correctly, the time that you made an evasive maneuver to not hit that elk while at the same time not hit the car that you merged into their lane. How do I weave through this to avoid the boulder that just rolled down that cliff? How do I, to wisely discern, is that the person I pick up? I so enjoyed listening to Rob's teaching about the Lord touching his heart. You go pick up that person. What? I got a pizza in the car. <laughs> and it was just, it was funny because he then was saying, 
that when he did pull over, pizza getting cold, Ida waiting, <laughs> the person that he felt he was inclined to help had no problem at all being pulled over and either chatting on her phone or whatever. He said, the car and her or her without the car reeked of weed. And he goes, oh, my Lord, really? And it's funny because that doesn't necessarily concern the Lord, the stench of people. What concerns the Lord is the heart of people in their stench. And I came to a point, too, where I was never going to help somebody as a humanitarian, but if the Lord touched my heart, I would. But even then, I learned that I had to ask for discernment. Because in one event that I did help out a stranded motorist, and she was a young lady, which again was not a problem, nor was it an incident with me. I felt I could roll the window down, say, what's your need? And she said, I need a ride to Gold Hill. So I was just coming off of a tour, and I said, I can do that. It's just 10 minutes up the road in the direction I'm going. So she hops in. And the next thing I know, a friend hiding in the woods threw up in my side van door, and he was trying to get all over me. If it wasn't for her, I think he would have done great harm to me. But I learned, slowly, but I learned. And the entire time I'm going, you got to be kidding me. I've traveled 10 states, some... 4,000 miles, and I've got a lunatic in my car. I was almost home. But she kept him at bay appreciating what I had done, and I absolutely believed that God kept this man at bay from harming me. But I could not wait to get to Gold Hill. I could not wait to say, God bless you. And she was able to say, come on. Let's go now, but let's go. Leave him alone. He was a nice guy. So the reason that I say that and why I alluded to Rob is that obedience doesn't necessarily have a compliance of, ooh, how rewarding, how rich, how deep, how spiritual. Sometimes it has invited you into a battle with a giant. David is cited as an example whose invitation came upon an insult against God. That was his invitation. Brothers didn't want him. He was, a, he was a wee little lad. What did he know about fighting giants? I don't even think that he knew. His practicum came in the wild kingdom. A lion and a bear was his practicum. He both knew how to defend and, in offense, kill. And it was sufficient for him to say, if I could do this with those creatures, mightier than all other animals in the forest, then I can take on this jackal. In essence, as slander was being voiced towards David and ultimately to God, David said, that's enough. This man's life will end in the honor that is due God. And that's what happened. So sometimes the Lord, in the things that are required of obedience from us, 
doesn't say you have the skill. He says, I've given you the experience, but most importantly, I've given you myself. And you can trust in that. But there's always discernment. David still had to pick the stones up. David still had to put his sling in order. David still had to work on proximity. It says that he ran to the grab the stones. And I know what that's like to run towards an opponent. We did it frequently in wrestling. And the guy that could move towards the takedown first usually was the prevailing athlete. You didn't want to be dancing around on the mat like a sumo wrestler. You wanted to go right towards your opponent to get his legs out from underneath him and work the special pretzel moves that you've been taught. 122, be surety for your servant for good. This means, Lord, be my down payment, be my covering. I can't afford what it is I'm getting into. I can't afford what it is I need to get out of. Be surety for me. In other words, it's saying, God, you be my pledge, and that's good enough for me. I don't need somebody's cloak. I don't need somebody's wallet. I don't need somebody's sword. Surety, Lord. You you hold me in your hands. That's good enough. Banking terms. If I am valued by you, as you have said in your word, I am, then I am your investment. I'm your investment. Be surety for your servant, and it says, for good. Not for evil. Not for worry. For good. God does good. His intentions are good. He's always good. Important to remember because there are bad things that happen, hard things that we go through. God very often, rather than having a reciprocation of honor and of thanksgiving, receives, well, thanks a lot for that, Lord. You really did a good one on me, sarcastically, not complimentary. We need to compliment the Lord. Be surety for me. Be my down payment. Cover me in what I lack with what it is you've spoken about me concerning what I'm full of, your treasure. Do not let the proud oppress me, he goes back to say. It's an oppressive world, and the proud are not the humble. Do not let them have oppression over me. And pride simply is, in the other term, arrogance. It's the verbiage of it. It's pride that has exalted itself above the consideration of another, and it has force behind it. And we've seen people like them. At times, the common term is narcissistic. The world rotates around them, and people are for their own disposal. So this is an appeal concerning the proud not oppressing. My eyes fail from seeking your salvation. What a picture there. It doesn't mean eyes that are, in fact, losing a connection. It means they are so in the focal point of seeking the Lord that there is a fatigue that comes upon them. Now, we can get fatigue in watching TV, our mobile screens. We can get fatigue in reading print from a book that's too small, from not having our optics changed, 
these glasses are like four or five years old. And some would say crazy. And sometimes I have to agree with whomever said that in my ear, you know, because when I take them off, there's a relief, but there's also like, I think they're making me cross-eyed. I may end up being a cross-eyed pastor because I milked my glasses for five years and forgot that they got tweaked in a wrestling match with the dog. I was going to say my kids, but they don't want to tangle with me. No. And so the optics are in this related to the fact that so intense or as always looking upon the Lord that there is a focal adjustment that is being spoken of. My eyes fail from seeking your salvation, your salvation, Lord. So when I have to rub my eyes, I hope it's because my focus has been so intense on the Lord and not the things of the world. And that's one of the snares that we find. There's sleep that at times I have to rub my eyes for. But what about the times in which I'm so intensely focused on the Lord, I need to rub them just to refresh them with a little massage because of the seeking of his salvation and your righteous word, how those two go together, your righteous word. I shared that while I was sick with COVID, the pages were pounds to turn, and even with glasses, I could not see the word. But the word saw me, and that which I had been familiar with was read on my heart, and it was noted on my mind. And most people in that kind of silence in which it has been by sheer weakness compelled you to do nothing but that, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting time in which by being incapacitated, the Lord gives you the capacity to hear from him to remember the words that he has spoken to you, to avoid the words that you may carelessly be speaking to another. Interesting, the power of words, and yet in James, it's destructive tendency. But if my eyes are focused on the Lord and my heart is to have the righteous word of God, then in verse 24, Deal with your servant according to your mercy. The Lord is more merciful than you and I on any given day, in any situation. Mercy means abstaining intentionally from giving somebody what they actually deserve. And there are people who deserve anything but mercy. It's a conflict, isn't it? How is it that the Lord can be so merciful to us while having an attribute in what we would call judicial prudence or justice being reasonable and fair. Of course, Lord, it's reasonable and fair that that did happen to that person or that people group. We're in a situation right now of global tension because of what Hamas is doing, backed by Iran, firing multiple thousands of rockets into a city area 
that I visited, it's so hard for me to see what that would look like. And yet, it has happened. And whatever governments may try to take credit of the brokering of peace, I assured you, it's only because Netanyahu is showing an attribute of God being merciful. He doesn't have to be. And there are sides being taken right now, and they are on a humanitarian basis, not a spiritual anchoring in the word. Israel is God's land. By the Old Testament standards, I believe it's, it's over 300,000 square miles that is theirs. Euphrates, the Tigris, all the way up to what is the Mediterranean. All of basically Middle Eastern proper is theirs, according to the word of the Lord, according to what Abraham received as a promise. It will be nothing less than all of that. So whatever missiles may be fired, when there's a ceasefire, it is the mercy of God against oppressors and aggressors that are violating his land and his holy city. So boy, do we have division in the land now. How the talking points lend itself to the cruelty of Israel. If it wasn't for Iron Dome, that masterful defensive mechanism that had been brokered with the U.S. and Israel's technology, it would be utter devastation. The Israelis are precise in their exercise of judgment. They're one of the only people groups that give warnings of clearing out before they take it down. They are surgical warriors. We try to be, but we don't really know how to be because where politics is not allowed to confuse the job that they have to defend their land, it confuses our men sorrowfully, not my dad's generation. And to think that my dad and others were in their mid-20s to 30s when they were flying what we would say archaic planes. But man, it's what they had. And they gave it to an enemy that meant harm and was not merciful. The Germans were not merciful. The Japanese were not merciful. It was wicked. So even when we go back and retry to write history and point to the enemy as being unfairly treated, not so when you read the accounts of what treatment they gave to the innocent and to the captured warriors. According to your mercy, deal with your servant. So therefore, it's something that we would desire to reciprocate and whatever that means being merciful. And teach me your statutes. Teach me about the binding force of your word in my life, in your promises, in this situation. Binding. You got me. Binding. You got them. Binding. It's a force. You are a force to contend with, God. I may have the culture coming after me, and I may have enemies indeed that are in pursuit of me, 
friends that have turned against me, but you're the binding force that preserves me. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. A beautiful statement again. How do you stay focused? How do you stay one who says, I'm not one of them? Nope. I am not one of them. Never will be. You declare who you are with. You're a servant of the Lord Most High. You're one who, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even David, Moses, Joshua, Give me understanding in this situation, Lord. Your expectation of how I'm to carry out this mission. Everyone that succeeded with the Lord ended up being one who obeyed the Lord when it didn't make sense at all. Moses, put your hand inside the lapel of your robe. Pull it out. Leprous. White as snow. Would have shocked him. Leprosy was something incurable, devastating, ravaging the body to the bone. Put it back in. Remove it clean as a newborn baby's bottom. Moses, toss your staff down. Turn into a serpent. Pick it up now by the tail. Became a staff again. Contrary to what one would do, which is to crush the serpent's head, or to pick it up behind the jaws quickly with a snatch. Pick it up by the tail. Uh, you mean the place that allows him really to do all of that kind of slithering and backbiting? He just did it. But it's interesting because in those examples, he would, by authority and from experience, obey the premise of God's command when he would present himself to God's people and when he would present himself before Pharaoh. And it's interesting because there was a moment in obeying two of those commands as he was interacting with God in which one very much disappointed the Lord, and that was this. I am a man's slow speech. Can't talk. We have to believe that in the defining of that, he really seems to be telling us there was an impediment that he had or bashfulness that he really suffered through. And I don't know which of the two it may be. Bashfulness can certainly be an impediment, but an impediment implies a speech disorder. Whatever it was, it wasn't an excuse that God would accept. And therefore, if he would not accept it, and the command that he gave Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, then it means really no excuse is good by whatever God tells us to do. And the results of obedience are not necessarily instantaneous fruit. And that's important because God gets the blame very often when in obedience we comply, and yet there's no result that we can say anchors itself to fruit. Because what God wants to know is, are you willing to obey, even to being a fool in it? Have you ever been a fool for God in obeying what you believe the Spirit was saying to do? Now, I would tell you that if somebody from the audience, who just happened to have come from the home with a home-baked pie, and like an old character on TV going back to the 50s, a little bit out of my generation, but I do remember seeing him this 
name was Soupy Sales. And Soupy Sales was known as the pie guy. Anybody that came on his show got pied. Not when they wanted it, not when they expected it, but this pie would just come out of left field, go, and just drip down their face. And so the reason that I use that as an illustration is to say that if somebody who said in the spirit, here's a pie pastor, and you'd probably see me laugh. Hopefully that it would be edible and not too hot from the oven because I believe that I could take it. But I probably wouldn't be able to acknowledge that was of the Lord, at least not right now, unless I really truly believe that God was doing a work of humility and showing me that I could take it. If Shimei could launch stones at David and hurl bad language to him, and David said, suppress what you're wanting to do, which is to kill him for the way he's talking to me, don't do it. The Lord's allowing this speech to hit me. The Lord's allowing those stones to pelt me or come close to me. It would have been humiliating to be a king and disregarded and treated that way. But the way that David understood it was by what he learned and how at times he was being compelled to treat a king who was malicious and hateful towards him to where the conviction of the Spirit for just snipping the hem of his garment smote him. That's pretty sensitive, in my opinion. Joshua was commanded that when he moved into the promised land, he basically took the mantle from Moses. We're not even told about a big giant briefing that took place. Moses is dead. You're going to be now taking my people across the Jordan, into the promised land. And he wasn't even aware of what awaited him, but a huge citadel called Cherico was. It was massive. And the only way that there could be a transaction of what to do in the act of obedience of crossing that river was to go out and seek God under the stars. And you recall that in so doing, he saw one disposed with a sword and he inquired as to, who are you and who are you for? Neither. I am the captain of the Lord's host of heaven. Joshua's question was answered by neither. This is who I am. And we're going to get things understood about what it is you're going to do. And so everything that Joshua would be asked to do was completely counterintuitive from who he had been under Moses. He all of a sudden had to turn into a priest, a diplomat. He all of a sudden had to say, eh, this is going to sound a little weird because you guys have really been training hard. Uh, you have learned how to fight. Uh, that's my inclination. But God's actually asked us to walk around this fortress seven times, and there's going to be some like music playing and maybe a little Celtic dancing. We don't know what that is yet because we're still working on our Jewish gig. But that's what we're going to do. And we do want to make sure uh, that the innocent are spared. So what we're going to do is go into the city, check it out, and we'll see what we've got as our solution in obeying God. But it was done according to God, as you recall, Rahab was the one and her family spared. 
because she hid the spies that were sent in. Nothing wrong with him sending in spies. But ultimately, everything was right about his obedience and how Jericho would be taken down. And it was counterintuitive to everything that he had been raised to do and accomplished as a general in the doing of it. Because God was going to teach him a whole new truth. The battle belongs to me. The consequence that happens in the loss of ground and the loss of personnel hinge on obedience. The consequence will always be yours to ruminate over. Did you follow through? And if you didn't, then did you adjudicate fairly? And of course, Joshua in one of those battles at AI would be in charge of calling out a man who disobeyed, and as a result of that disobedience, the battle was lost. Lots of life lost. God was serious in how he wanted to adjudicate. God was serious about how he wanted that city to be taken, and he wanted to take down those stones by the obedience of priests that prayed, Levites that sang, soldiers that kept their peace, and that on signal, on a given signal, would scream unto the Lord, How do you like that if you're not a mosh pit guy or a screamer? That's not my thing. Lord, I don't scream. I can't even sing. I mean, it's kind of, social distancing is kind of what I'm used to right now. Anybody got a mask? Teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Testimonies, remember, is the perspective that God, the way that he sees things. It's not about your life story. I know we get that mixed up. A testimony has brevity to it, but it's always about what you learned from God's perspective because you saw an event in your life the way that God sees you in that event in life. I like this. (laughs) It's a timely word. could be a great word. It is time for you to act. Oh, Lord. If you're having one of those, it's time for you to act. Oh, Lord. (laughs) There are those moments. It is time for you to act, oh, Lord. Those are great. That's mm, confidence. That's like, I can totally see this coming. I'm with you. But what about that? It's time for you to act. Oh, Lord. It's two ways. Have you ever had that dynamic so the reason that I say that again is that obedience does not necessarily guarantee the taste of fruit but it does guarantee that the Lord saw your act of obedience in spite of your humiliation and you are then able to say in the confident assurance it is time for you to have Lord, as I've taken upon myself an action that is based on your word, then I'm believing you and what now only you can do. And that's take my works of humility and my acts of obedience and multiply them to where I am able to do nothing but to give you credit and glory. We're here because of the obedience of a congregation people will still remember that over three years ago, we ordered like 5,800 101-gallon cans of paint. And people were looking at me, knowing 
that we had been given 30 days to leave. And everybody was coming to me saying, well, what's plan B? And I just looked at them, not angrily, but saying, plan B is plan A. That's all I know. So where are we going? Plan B is plan A. When the Lord gives us a sure word, we will make a sure walk and we will find a way. And so there were people, one person actually was Bob. He sits over there. And he put this little word in my ear and it was, hey, you ought to take a look at Barron's. I had no idea where Barron's was at. But I remember that I pulled my car in and the lights were the only fled into this place and it was dark. And I said, oh, Lord, act now. Deliver us from evil. But actually God was saying, I'm delivering you into my home. And the paint that people easily could have said, <laughs> you fool. And think of all the people in Brookings that wanted to paint their house in that color and you, you took it from them. We're going to use it. I had to tell people, we're going to use it. And so May 1st, from one Sunday, in one Sunday, one Sunday on Sunday, we were ready for church the next Sunday. College came in, and they painted everything. Demoed a Grecian kind of motif back there. I thought it was cool. We were almost going to put the stage over there. And, you know, I'd come out of this little Grecian motif. Good morning, everybody. But that got demoed. But every paint, whether you like the color or not, the college did it. Amazingly. Bathroom built by Carlton and Sons. Well, he didn't have any sons here at the time. A couple of sons. But he went in there like a bulldog. B's been here on the site. Many of you, people that have been here, you've put your hand to it. The kitchen, hooey vey. We have one. But what I'm saying is, is that it wasn't an immediate reward. I've, I met somebody that had the key to this place, probably got him fired because he opened the door for us. And I think he actually gave me the key. We were actually here before the contract was signed. Every day, every week, is to be asking, Lord, for your favor with the company that is landlord over us. But Lord, you own the land that they believe they are Lord over and you are the Lord over them. So we've even got some things that are working out right now that seem to be in our favor of our very hard, hard year in the financials. I did some paperwork today in which ABC Partners seems to have qualified for a rent relief grant that pretty much will cover every single person within the complex. That's a great gift. If it is a little ploy by the enemy <laughs> to get another bastard in jail, I'll let you know. Okay? I'll let you know. I thought about that. They're just trying to get me to sign on a dotted line, and I don't even know what that fine print says anyways because my eyes can't focus. They've been on the Lord. 
It's time for you to act, O Lord, in the affirmative. For they have regarded your laws void, therefore I love your commandments. See, one of the things that we do is we get ticked because of what we would say is lawlessness. This writer indicates that that by itself is a catalyst for being able to say, I love your commandments. See, we get incited by those who incite riotous, lawless behavior. Our fists clenched and our teeth with it, and we're just looking to see what we can do to contribute to the cleanup. And I'm not saying there isn't lawful necessity for a cleanup, but this is very interesting because this turns this phrase into a phrase of excitement. Oh Lord, how what they are doing validates for me the love I have for your commandments. How you, in your power, in your authority, convince me and give me the conviction to know what order looks like spiritually and to see that that is satisfied practically. More than gold, yes, than fine gold, therefore all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. So, classic Verses to be able to say, wow, what a right way to think about wrong things being done. Not to celebrate wrong things being done, but to never allow righteousness to be subordinated by wickedness. Meaning that we can say, it's all over, it's all done, they've prevailed, God's lost. We need to be able to say, according to this perspective, that when the prevailing of evil seems to be so overt and so overwhelmingly against us or the church, we have to say, but we have one who has not yet begun to show his defense in their offense, who has not entered in yet in the battle scheme that he will give us and how he will deliver us. And it's just a cool way to live. I would want better to live that way than in what could be the reason to give up and quit is on the contrary, the motivating factor to grab a hold of the Lord and to say, I'm with you. I don't care who may or may not follow. I mean, in sentiment, I do. But Lord, I'm with you. And I think that's a great way to live. Though others may forsake you, I am with you. And if you say you're going to take down that wicked obstacle with the blueberry that I'm eating in my hand right now, I won't eat it, and I'll believe that you'll turn this into a missile. And I don't have the arms for it, so I believe you'll turn me into a superhero to make it happen. It's believing God for what it is he wants to do, regardless of my opinion and how he's going to do it. The sovereignty of God, in my opinion, best defined. He will act on his behalf regardless of man's behavior. Okay, so Israel 
has permitted a brokering for peace. But if there is wickedness and deceit in the political proposal for them to cease, God will unleash a form of justice, reasonable and fair, to that particular, because we've seen it before, a ceasefire is opportunity for the enemy to do what? Restock, re-aim, and refire. We've seen it. it's a predictable, predictable effect. So with a blueberry either in your mouth or the last one remaining in your hand, if God says, I'm going to use that, he gets to use it. It doesn't matter if you say, I would like a stone out of the brook that David found really effective. Nope, I did that with David, using a blueberry for you. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessings right now on our time in the Word, on our advance in Psalm 119, the verses that have been covered to 128. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bless those who are still healing. Bless them in vital strength. Bless us as we trust in you and lean upon you and walk with you, run with you, climb for you, swim for you. We ask your blessings, Lord, on the infirmed and the way their body system is now learning how to function. So we therefore pray for Zach and the many hundreds of thousands who have been dealt in that way a particular infirmity, a malady. But we pray for that body system. We pray for responsiveness in neurology. We celebrate their spirituality. Of course, Zach in particular just who voices a confidence in how you've brought him. Christy and all that she has done. Very close friends and allies to her personally in handling the many things that related administratively to the things that brought him not only to Reading, but ultimately as well to Denver. Thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, bless our closing song and our adjournment to the next day. Amen. In Jesus' name. <laughs>